Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Okay, we're on record. Lori McCarthy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to have great to be here. We were just chatting before the show about the the time zone changes across Canada and you're two and a half hours ahead of me. So it's it's makes it challenging to schedule a podcast, but it's also exciting because it uh it exemplifies how big and how diverse this country is. It is, yes. You're in mountain time and I'm in Newfoundland time. We actually have our own time zone over here. <laughs> two two plus half an hour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I remember that as a kid when we used to watch CBC, like, you know, the, um, the, the ho- hockey night in Canada or something like that, where they would always tell you what the forward programming is. And it was like, they'd give all the different time zones. And then it was always two and a, a half hour later. In, in in Newfoundland, Newfoundland. So yeah. it was, that was kind of a, kind of a thing when, yeah. in the seventies. So kind of a Canadian inside joke, I guess. Well, right? I grew up in a hockey family, so I too remember <laughs> I spent, I was a rink rat, right? I spent my time following my brothers around in the in the hockey rinks it's a it's a Canadian thing (laughs) absolutely so I'm excited to have you on the show um and and to hear some thoughts around um some of the questions that 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 I uh that I sent you earlier so let's jump into it so why have you taken it upon yourself to embark on this journey about learning and preserving food, food culture that, that's unique to Newfoundland? Uh, you know, I always find that the why you do things change along the way. It evolves for sure. Um, I grew up in the time of the, the Cod Moratorium and I was a, you know, a young teenager. And I remember you know, what was, what was said to many of us in that time, and dad was a teacher um, and a fisherman. So, you know, the story that was told to us during that time was to leave Newfoundland and, and go in search of a better life. 
basically, right? Um, and I think unless you, you know, you grow up so close to uh, an industry and the land and the sea like that, it is really hard to understand something that was so life-changing and so devastating to a whole culture. Um, so I, like many, you know, I, I moved away and many of my friends and, and family moved away. Um, it, we all, we're always looking to come back. That's the thing about the Newfoundlanders that head, head up, up to Canada, you say, right? Up to, you know, Toronto and Alberta. And sometimes we always say there's more of them, you know, in Toronto and Alberta than there is home in Newfoundland sometimes. And it really speaks to a change in time here, right? Um, as I grew up, um, I went to work in, in the food industry um, as a cook and a chef and you know, it really wasn't until I had my own kids that I became very determined that the story that was told to me was not going to be the one that I was that I was going to tell them. Like, I did not want that story to be one of leave Newfoundland, there's nothing here for you anymore. Because I just looked at this place as it's just a, a spectacular place to grow up and live. Um, and of course I didn't think it as a young person, but then, you know, like you say in time and hopefully wisdoms comes with age, right. Uh, and things and what becomes more important to you changes. And for me, it became really important. I was watching what was happening in the, in the, you know, that food world across, across the globe and seeing what was happening with chefs and, and, you know, place in Scandinavia and, you know, in Germany and watching what they were putting on the plates um, and like just started to really pay attention to that, though, that food movement because, of course, I wasn't working when the, uh, when the babies were young. And so it became just this driving force to learn more about here, knowing that, you know, we live in a place where 90% of this island is wilderness. You know, it's uninhabited completely. We have some of the cleanest waters and cleanest lands and food sources, um, and they're incredibly vast. So for me, it became, how could I introduce people to the food of here? Not, not just the food that, you know, we can eat in restaurants, like very high-end restaurants that, that, you know, and it is how many places, it is how their food becomes so revered, right? Is that it shows up in magazines and t and it's brought to life by really, by top chefs. I really wanted to know more about the culture of how that food came to be. I wanted to know more about um, those, those preservation skills that really kept it alive and, and made us as a people who we are today. It became just a driving force to, to fall in love with this place. Like, you know, my, my grandparents and my parents, while the story was to leave, it was, that story was told to us, not because they didn't love it, it's because they wanted better for us, what they thought better was, right? And in that time, it was definitely, you know, a good education and, and you know, go off and make good money for yourself, to take care of yourself. So it was not a story out of um, disdain for this place at all. It was actually the complete opposite. So, yeah, that's how it all started. Wow. Wow, it's so since since you started doing this, has your has your has your interests changed as as you learn? Um, 
like in in you know are you are you up against time like trying to learn from uh older generations you know have you have you changed you know what you were doing because of you know working you know with other people like you said this has been an evolution this has been mm -hmm. a journey what is what has been some of the like i guess say the big things that have maybe changed some direction for you like in yeah. the middle of this of this journey that you're on sure so in the beginning it was i started foraging for um, a top restaurant here and that restaurant was you know had hit the san pellegrino best in canada list um it was it was making waves globally for what it was doing with the food here and how it was presenting the you know what once was commonly known as just like our everyday foods and it was um, being recognized as just just so changing, right? So when I started foraging, I used to bring stuff to the restaurant um, and ask them if they basically had any use for it, right? And it became, you know, this beautiful relationship between the chefs there. They were coming from around the world to work stages in these restaurants where they would come and just to be around that energy and to learn from other chefs from here. Um, they would just come and work for, for no pay, right? It's, it's very common in restaurants. So very good restaurants. So um, people were coming from everywhere. So I would introduce them to plants that I knew of here, ask them if they knew them, and then they would take them and turn them into, you know, culinary magic, right? You know, beyond what we ever thought they were, you know, even something like Capelin. I mean, Capelin here is just the, the small bait fish, something like a smelt, right? And they come ashore, the spawn. Locally here, we would have a feed of fresh capelin every year when, you know, when they, they only spawn and, and roll ashore for about a week. Um, but capelin, yes, it was a food source and they were smoked and corned and, and put away for the winter, you know, in my grandparents' time. But then in mom's time, there was it started to become more like they were a source of fertilizer. That is what people put on their gardens to grow. You know, even like kelp, you know, kelp, you know, you'd, and still today you go out to the small communities and there's men backing up in their pickup trucks and loading all the kelp in on the trucks because it is how we build soil. So we're on an island. We don't have any, we have, you know, very little agriculture here, very little soil. So this is how they actually built soil, right? Through kelp and capelin. And, and so the restaurant started showcasing these foods in, in, in a way that became, like I say, these culinary like delights, right? I guess I started to want to expose people to it that we're not coming here or, or we're not going to these restaurants to eat. I wanted them to experience these foods like I did growing up. And I wanted them to experience them, like, to understand, uh, I, I guess, more why it was so important to us as a culture. You know, why it was important if, as, you know, as things change and we can't, um, we, you know, regulations change and we can't hunt that animal anymore. Or, or why, we, why we hunt seal. You know, you know, these kinds of conversations are difficult to have sometimes. Um, so I didn't want it to be just a presentation that was in a fine dining restaurant. I wanted people to see it as we did uh, and why it was so important to, to the, all the generations, right? And I think in order to do that, I had to, I had to learn it. Um, so when I would go places and travel around Newfoundland, 
I would go in search of the stories of this food and um, and that food. And I would have, you know, like I say, I had beers and sheds with old skippers and I had many cups of tea with little old ladies around their kitchen table in little tiny towns, like only accessible by boat still today. And so I started to see it as a real um, loss, right? And like when you said about playing catch up like yeah we are playing catch up because the preservation methods the food themselves you know how it was um, eaten why it was eaten at certain times of the year why we grew this you know these these vegetables why how we stored them even right down to like root cellars here are so common it was the only way to keep um, vegetables good for the for the winter now just keep in mind, like we're in a place where nothing grows for like nine, nine months of the year, right? So we don't put vegetables in the ground till the end of June and they all come out the end of October. So a very short growing season. So it meant that we had to learn how to preserve food. And if you didn't, there was no option, right? There was, you know, the, again, there was so many communities accessible only by coastal boat even today, so many of these, um, you know, places are, are still inaccessible. Uh, there's no roads to them. So what, you know, the preservation methods, the techniques, that culture was born out of truly, true necessity of, of living, right? And so there's that importance, but there's also the importance of how these foods brought people together. And I think for me, that became a lot of the driving force too. Like, what does it mean now that we don't harvest these animals together? Or what does it mean now that we don't sit around in, um, you know, young girls are not sitting around with, with the older generation and learning how to pickle this harvest. And they're, lo they're not learning how to do the beadwork that is so, you know, indicative of, of our indigenous culture here. So, Yes, I see it as a loss. I think it's it's an awful tragedy if we let it go because we are in a place that it is it is what makes us who we are. And so, you know, it became a, a tourism product in the beginning and it became like an opportunity to share this place and foraging and the foods with people so that we could have the conversations um, around you know, all these, all, you know, the seal and conversations that were difficult to have in places because of obvious, um, you know, bad publicity around the stuff, right? And, you know, many people, if you don't grow up in a hunting culture, you can't understand it. Just like I can't understand what it's like to grow up in Seattle or New York City or Los Angeles. Like, I don't know what, what makes the culture of that place. So my, you know, I try to move forward with the idea that if you don't understand it and you have a desire to, just ask questions, but do it respectfully. So, you know, that, you know, that tourism business was shut down in COVID and I was really ready for it to change. I was really ready for people to leave this place with an even greater understanding. Um, and so all my work since then has been around how do I create a greater understanding? Um, for people who came here so that when they leave, they, I want them to get it, you know. So now I, I, I run a cultural food residency 
And when people come here, they spend longer periods of time and it's one person or two people. You know, we just finished um, the second season of, of our TV show. And that is us going and capturing these foods, eel spear fishing, which, you know, will, will be a tradition and a food source that will, will not be here in 10 years because it is a dying earth and a dying tradition. Things like smelt fishing and, and even salmon fishing. So it's like even that piece of, of, of my work became about how do, I, how do I tell these stories so that people still, they still have relevance and I understand they need to change and what we do with our food needs to change um, in order for it to stay relevant today. But there are still people, young people, who want to know, who never had the opportunity to hunt with their, their family. Maybe their family never hunted. And now all of a sudden, they really care about where their food comes from. So, you know, it really runs, yes, evolution for sure. And it's always evolving, right? It's, but it it's always comes back to how do we share the stories that matter? How do we keep the culture alive? How do we pass it on to the next generation? And how do we remind the older generation of the value that it still has for us today? Because... Oh, that's a good point. Their va- like that value lies with them. And if they don't see any value in it, then they're not passing it on. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And like, do, do you think it's OK, like for something like what food means to a culture, how just like language, um, like evolution across the generations is do you think that, that that's OK? Um, but as long as it continues to reflect the culture, so the culture can evolve, too. But like if if the nuances of language are lost or the nuances of food are lost, then the culture's lost and then Newfoundlanders are just like New Yorkers or Seattleites sure. or something like that. So is is do, do generally do folks embrace the idea of some evolution of things changing, but it's a blend between old and new ways, but it's still saying this is Newfoundland culture? Is that yeah. is that embraced or resisted? I guess it depends on who you talk to. I think overall, (laughs) I think overall, um, you know, the next wave of cooks and chefs coming up, absolutely they embrace it. They want to learn more about what's edible here, about the foraging, and um, they want to be able to learn how to hunt and access these meats. Um, They want to be able to, and like even, I remember this time I put on a rabbit butchery workshop you know, thinking that if nobody, if nobody shows up or if nobody buys it, it's okay because, you know, it's just something that I wanted to learn how to do. So I went out with hunters and I learned to do it and my dad taught me. And it's like maybe that, maybe there is people out there who never learned how to do it when they were young like me. And what I learned is that there is a, the next wave, that next generation of people do want to know how to do it. Maybe they're going to do something different with it than have a stew with it, like we always had, a traditional stew. So I think it's important that there's tradition, there's culture, and there's heritage, and they're all not the same thing. Not that they all have a very defined um, you know, definition, right? I think 
you know, what makes our culture evolves. What, you know, we, we're a culture of people and that will change as, as things change. And it doesn't make us less of a culture than, than before. You know, tradition is tradition, right? And I do try to always share the, the past, the present, and the future, right? When it comes to a meal, when it comes to a dish, when it comes to seal, you know, our harvesting practices are changing. Our, um, you know, our preservation methods are changing as we all learn and grow, you know, about ways to do this. You know, there, there are better ways to do stuff. You know, we have more information and more access to technology and information now, which has changed stuff. But it, yes, there's a lot of change that's doing a lot of good. Um, mm. You know, like this podcast for exactly this example. You know, today I can learn how to skin and butcher and cook deer and anything you want. Everything's on the internet, right? But, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a beautiful thing that people get to do it. Because if you didn't grow up, if you didn't grow up in that culture of it, then you wouldn't get, it wasn't passed down, then the opportunity wouldn't exist for you, right? So there are people who are embracing it completely. I don't really see any, um, you know, negative feedback or even from like mom and dad's generation or nan and pop, you know, they find it fascinating that we still want to eat this stuff because to them it was stuff that they had to eat. Like, you know, when I said to my dad one time, I, I, we grew up on a lamb farm and of course, boys always hunted three brothers, dad, dad, like hunting was, you know, was part of the culture, um, in our family. And, you know, when I became a young teenager, the farm was sold and, and, you know, on with new ways of, of living and existing. And, um, I then fell in love with food and I wanted to learn how to butcher lambs. And so I was so excited to tell my dad that I was getting this lamb. I was going to learn how to butcher it. And dad's comment, um, and this, this was like that, one of those, you talk about that shifting moment. Like this was one of those moments that really uh, made me, like forced me to think about what it was to me and what it was to him. And, you know, because dad said to me, sure, you, we don't have to do that anymore. And that's what it was. I was like, okay, so we did it when we had to. We don't have to anymore. So we, so we, we, we buy what dad would call, you could buy good meat now. So here's like that transition. So we ate it because we had to. When you grew it and reared it because you had to, because there wasn't full and plenty of money to buy. So when food and money started to come into play, it changed how we ate because when we could afford to do better, you know, in my little quotes here, we, we, you did. So when you can afford to buy, like dad says, good meat, well, good meat was Alberta beef. It wasn't what, you know, the local butcher was selling out of his back of his truck, which that's how meat came to communities. So it was this real, you know, thought process for me. And it wasn't that it was no good. It was that you sort of, it meant that you could, you were doing better financially for your family. You had, you know, this idea of, you know, moving up in the world, <laughs> you know, which is right now, I think for us in food, it's like, now it's becoming like a backwards and, and a very 
like misunderstood way of like living that we trucked all this food from so far and just listening to your last podcast about Dana, like I was listening to her and we're saying like, we could have been saying the same things. Like I could only <laughs> imagine her and I having great conversations. Um, yeah. So, uh, it's interesting, like the cost of local meat now, the, you know, what it costs to hunt, what it costs to, you know, put yourself in the gear and go on a hunting trip is also not what it used to be. So the older generation find it fascinating that we still want to do this and eat like this. That's, that is so cool though. Like it's, <laughs> I, I love, I love that. It's sort of like, you know, it's kind of perplexed that you're interested in this because we had to eat it right. as kids. It's sort of like, you know, like the same thing three times a yes. day. So right. I remember my, I remember my grandfather saying, you know, it was kind of like, why the heck would I want a wood stove? <laughs> right? Like, right. I have three uh, now. <laughs> like a week, you know, our house was heated up. Uh, but. It's, it's good to keep that generation on their toes and a little, a little bit perplexed. It but, is. Yeah. Keeps uh, them interested. Keep gives like always gives dad something to, you know, so what are you up to now? Right. He'll say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cause it could be now, anything. <laughs> now in this journey for you in, in, you know, um, food and culture in, in Newfoundland, where has hunting fit into that journey for you personally? Mm. So we grew up with hunted meat in the house. Um, it was, uh, you know, common. We don't have deer here on the island. Um, so moose was, was the main big game here. Uh, and caribou. Caribou more so in Labrador. Um, the numbers of caribou have dropped on the island a, a lot. Uh, so it's not a real, I don't know a lot of people who, who get to still hunt caribou. Um, so moose, for instance, was a staple. Like, you had to get a moose. Like that was just non-negotiable, right? Um, because it was just so much meat for the winter and we had bigger families back then, right? So, uh, but I didn't actually start to, uh, you know, want to have that desire to hunt until I was like, uh, like my early thirties, you know, when the, when the kids no. were, yeah, when the kids were born, it really became more about the meat of here and it came from, you know, my introduction into kitchens and, you know, seeing, working in a lot of kitchens and seeing what we eat. And then I think just the sheer volume of food uh, and food, you know, from food waste to food production to just, it, it was just, I found it, um, you know, it, it definitely forced me to stop and look at it. And then I, then, you know, that shift to, well, why couldn't I still, hunt this and and you know we grew up with ptarmigan and and grouse and rabbits and like my brother would you know go check his snares before he went to school and you could drive along the, along the highway here and see fellas selling rabbits on the highway for you know 50 cents for a brace so it was so accessible that i i couldn't i felt like i could no longer justify not eating it almost you know <laughs> um so yeah i i started to um you know, just become more interested and, and asking more about it. And dad and, you know, I didn't, I really, I went and joined the Rod and Gun Club here um, in St. John's of the, um, and that was really where I started to sort of break into that culture a little bit because it's so intimidating, especially for a female. And sometimes it's the idea that, well, 
you know, well, you must know about hunting. Sure, you, you know, grew up with your, your dad and brothers. And like, yeah, but I wasn't dragged off on the hunt. I wasn't made to go, and nor was I invited to go, nor did I show the interest, right? Um, so for me, it became, it was a very slow introduction to it. It was, you know, I don't know the difference between a shotgun and a rifle and, a, and you know, um, but though, but the, the older generation at the St. John's Rod and Gun Club definitely changed how, um, you know, that opportunity for me. And early on, I noticed in that there was, a, with these workshops that I was teaching, because so in the summertime, there was, um, you know, travelers coming and I was running my business and introducing them to forage foods and we would forage and we would, you know, pick berries and make jam around the fire and I would cook rabbit and seal and stuff for them. And then in the fall and the winter, I used to offer workshops and still do again now to um, local people. And those workshops are everything from, you know, rabbit snaring and wild game cooking and, you know, cooking over the fire and bottling moose and butchery and all that stuff. So I wanted to learn it. And so because that, I went out in search of looking for hunters to learn it from. And it was only actually this year that I took my first moose myself on my own license and like I'm 46 now you know you might not get a license every year here so you put in for a draw um, I had a license four years ago and didn't fill my tag like now that I've you know you see the process I've been on site like last year two years ago with my dad and my brother it was the first time it was I um, hunted with dad and my brother together and we took a moose that day and, you know, my other brother showed up and, you know, just like it was, took like four men to break down this animal. Right. And and the <laughs> sheer weight of it. And now I started thinking, oh, my God, it was like I don't know what I would have done had I taken a moose. And all the miles I walked on my that, you know, that year I had that license. I mean, but it's common. You know, you, you got you make the call. I got a moose down. Right. And then everyone stops everything and they go to make it happen, which, again, is part of that. um is part of the the importance of the pieces that are being lost, right? How would I do that myself? You know, not only that, how would I get to hear the hunting stories and and from generations? How, if you're not there and we're not doing it anymore, then we won't understand it. And we if and once we stop eating it, then it doesn't have any importance anymore. Like, what does it matter then? But if it's all of a sudden I don't have five hundred pounds of meat in my freezer. Now I got to buy 500 pounds of meat this year. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's, it did come full mm -hmm. circle. And, and now, you know, I live in a cabin in the woods and I can set snares in my backyard. And I'm just in a little community. I'm not like, you know, way out and float play me in or something. So, I mean, I can rabbit hunt and I can snare rabbits from here. And I can, there's grouse in my backyard. I can... My moose came from less than five kilometers from here, and right, like I could literally have and eat enough game in ten kilometers for a, a whole family for a whole year, and it would cost me nothing, only gas and a gun, which you could borrow if you needed to. That's so important, you know. I believe today it's you know, um, you know, like you hear you hear about the you know like the hundred kilometer diets like you know get all your produce and stuff within a hundred kilometer radius mm. you're supporting small market farms and operators and I kind of almost uh, you know the same thing with hunting mm -hmm. you know like it's cool to travel to new places and try new things but 
I find the most rewarding is the same as you when I'm getting a deer 10 minutes from my house, you know, or some, some grouse or ducks or whatever yeah. that, you know, are, are not that far away. It just, it just feels like the right thing to do. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of it does come down to that. It is, it's, it's psychological, right? We, I, I love it. It makes me feel good. It gets me outside. We all know that we're supposed to be spending more time outside and, you know, hunters and people who forage, like we are, we just spend, it just seems like such a part of who we are and it changes how you live. It changes how you see the world. You know, it, when you eat like that, it, something is just different. It is, mm. you know, the other night we yeah. had, um, the first piece of moose tenderloin from the moose, um, I, we got like what? five, six weeks ago, you know, I hung all the quarters myself. I took all the meat off. I seamed it all out myself. I vacuum packed it all down, grind it all. And, you know, when you pull out that piece of tenderloin that we had the other night, and then I go to my pantry and I pull down like my dehydrated mushrooms. Um, you know, there's four different kinds of mushrooms that I picked and then you're having it on fresh pasta that you made. Is it like total geeked out? Yes, I am totally <laughs> geeking out. <laughs> you know, and it's like per cooked perfectly medium rare. And it's, you know, and then there's the moose stock that I'm making the sauce with. Yes, it is. It's totally geeking out on it. But, you know, so that's the change. You know, when mom and dad were eating it and we were growing up, they weren't having a whole culinary moment around it. You know, for me, <laughs> um, I am, but it, it doesn't make it any more or less important, you know, um, the fact that at the end of the day, it's still a moose that I took and butchered and now I get to eat it. <laughs> yeah. You know, you said something like a couple minutes ago about, you know, like a moose is so big and that, you know, you, that when you get a moose, it's like immediately you start calling and it's like everybody comes. Yeah. My son got a moose last year and, uh, there were other people out in the area, they were moose hunting and you'd stop and you'd talk to them on the side yeah. of the road and, oh, you know, oh, oh, you live in, oh, I know your uncle and, you know, kind of oh, all gosh. that kind of stuff out, out in the woods. Every single person mm -hmm. was like, well, hey, if, if you guys get lucky, um, give us a shout yeah. on the radio and, and we lucked out. We were the only ones in this entire valley and, and my son got the moose the one morning, so I got on the on the truck radio and you know called one of the fellows and said you know hey we could take you up on that offer and then there were other people listening mm -hmm. on the radio and it was like the next thing you knew there was like eight people showed up um, some had tack and block hole, uh, block and tackle mm -hmm. they had ropes and cables and crossed the river and had a safety rope and drug oh. the moose down and and one guy even had a sheet of plywood that you put on the tailgate and eight people slid it into the back of my truck. And it's like, that's why we bring this piece of plywood with us. And, and my son and I sat around the campfire that night and went, you know what? I think moose hunting is the quintessential mm. hunt that defines Canada oh, because so it's probably the only form of hunting where, at least in my experience, it is about hunting with a group of people. Mm -hmm. It is about a community hunt. It is about helping each other. It's not just like, oh, geez, there's some guy parked here or whatever. It's like, yeah. no, let's stop and say, hey, if you get a moose, we know you're going to need help. If yeah. it's a deer, it's like, yeah, get out of my spot, you know, right. go go away. Yeah. It's, and uh, that's it, it seemed to be 
a, a thread that would connect all Canadians That's so moose beautiful. hunting because of that. Yeah. yeah, you're so right. It is about the community that it builds, that camaraderie between between people. Um, you know, and so much good here happens with moose. Like um, Harvest NL just um, recently, in the past couple of years, brought back the the charity moose license. So now, when you get a charity moose license, we get to donate that meat. And so I'm on the Rotary, uh, um, the Rotary Club here, and like our Rotary Club, we have a charity license every year, and that means that we get to take that moose. We split it up between some of the churches and the food banks. We all show up and we cook. You know, I think we made 250 meals of moose chili um, in a in a in a church kitchen, and it all went to a food bank. And so it's that, but it's also you know the the older generation who don't can't hunt anymore and you'd never people in the community would never see them go without moose right and the bald moose and you're dropping off this and you're dropping off a roast to this one and i mean i love how you said that it is like the quintessential canadian hunt for that reason it's that building community yeah. and and camaraderie and taking care like my grandfather used to say right it's always about taking care right it's like of yeah. people and yeah it's so Oh, oh I, it's love, all warm and I love your story. <laughs> I know. I, I love your story. I love uh, what you've been doing. I've been following you for years on oh. Instagram, watching you grow and flourish as both like a brand and and a business and personally. And, oh, and uh, I've always been inspired by that. It's it's awesome. And, you know, I'm in British Columbia. I love learning about other parts of the country and mm. connecting with you and learning more about Newfoundland culture and, and hunting is just, is, uh, it's a growth opportunity for me. And, you know, I tell a story, um, you know, a few times about Canada's history and it involves Newfoundland and hunting. And I use this as an example to just say how important hunting is to a culture. When Newfoundland had the opportunity to join Confederation, it was around the time when Canada was negotiating the Migratory Game Bird Treaty. And there were international provisions going to be put on the harvesting of sea ducks, mm -hmm. which was going to limit how Newfoundlanders hunted sea ducks. Yes. And because sea ducks were such a, Mersenters was such mm -hmm. a huge part of Newfoundland culture, mm -hmm. culture, they actually said, unless you change that, we are not joining Canada. Yeah. And there were changes made. And I'm just like, how powerful is that as a defining mm. moment to this country that the choice to join Canada, you know, as, as an independent, um, you know, state, I mm. guess you would, you would almost call it, revolved around whether or not you were going to tell people what they could and couldn't do with hunting wow, ducks. Yeah, I mean, it is a... It is a powerful story, right? And it reminds you like our, we call them turs here, right? But they're, yes, they're the myrrh. And that is a cultural hunt. And that yep. is, you know, that is such a part of people's lives and, and our culture. And so, yeah, that is a great story. I'm so glad you told <laughs> that because that is so, uh, I mean, that story just hardly ever gets told. Yeah, no, I've, I've told it a few times. I, oh. I love it. Um, so let folks know where they can find you on social media. I'm at Food Culture Place um, on Instagram, on Facebook, and um, on my website. Yeah, so Food Culture Place.
Yep. So find find her on Instagram, folks, and follow her. You're going to learn a lot about Newfoundland culture and food. As well, this was a Christmas present last year. Oh. I specifically <laughs> asked for it. So Thank you. Lori and a friend, Marsha Tulk, have created a book, Food Culture Place, Stories, Traditions, and Recipes of Newfoundland. Yeah. And it's not, it's not all hunting and it's not all game animals. And this is the beauty of this, which I think truly reflects hunting in Canadian culture, is we preserved food. Mm. We picked berries. We picked mushrooms. We raised chickens. We raised pigs and sheep and cows. Uh, we caught fish and, and we hunted. Mm-hmm. And, and it was that was how we fed ourselves. Right. And we grew community and culture around that. It wasn't all hunting. No. Um, and your book does a beautiful job to show how hunting fits into Newfoundland culture. It's a part of it. And that I think is what needs to be preserved and mm. hunting needs to be preserved part of that. And um, Thank you. Yeah, I mean that. I love the I love the mortadella recipe. Oh, that's Marsha's recipe. I made that for elk. I made that for El Camp last Did year. You? And the guys loved it. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Um, yeah. yeah, the the book was a real culmination of Marsha's life on the West Coast, and my life on the East Coast. And the traditions are so different, and so it is. It's stories. It is. Um, so many cultural pieces of food and Marcia did all the photography and and you know um yeah so it's just it was a fantastic journey to put that into a place where you know people from here can certainly see it and, and be proud of it and be proud of these foods and this culture and and what it means to people still today so I think that's um, absolutely yeah thank you so it's much it's a beautiful book so folks if you're interested in in you know wild game cooking that speaks Canadian uh, and not everything is a taco recipe, um, <laughs> look, f- look for Laurie's book, Food Culture Place. Laurie, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. This was a ton of fun. Uh, I really look forward to, you know, coming to the East Coast one day, maybe doing some film documentaries yes, or something on a few of these topics. I would love it. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Um, and uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing because there are people out there who are soaking this stuff up, right? Um, and it's important to us. That's why we do it, right? We sit around, we have these conversations, and you get to, you know, bring people that are listening just the stories and why all this means so much to us. So, yeah, thank you. No, no, appreciate that. It's uh, it's the evolution of tradition, and this is the modern campfire. Ah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, thanks. Thank you so much. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.